Good evening. You are listening to The Truth Tank and I'm your host, The Tank. If this is your first time listening to The Truth Tank, a big welcome. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. Today's show is going to be all about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, his newly released epic biopic on J. Robert Oppenheimer. You must be sleeping under a rock if you don't know who Christopher Nolan is. He is one of the most prolific filmmakers of this or any other generation. His films have gained cult and classic status. I mean, he obviously directed the Dark Knight trilogy, which set the bar pretty fucking high for comic book and superhero films. It's yet to be topped. Matt Reeves, the Batman, comes in in a pretty close second position. But just the layers of complexity to the characters and the world of the Dark Knight set it apart from the standard comic book fare. Likewise, his earlier films... Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige. The Prestige is a underrated classic. That movie always makes you think. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I've been trying to find it on Blu-ray, but it is becoming increasingly hard to find. Same with Memento and Insomnia. And then there's the Dark Knight trilogy. Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. Inception was a masterpiece. I love that film. Out of most of his films, besides the Dark Knight trilogy, that's the one I've probably seen the most. Then came Interstellar, another time-bending, mind-altering film, blending different elements. You can't really call that film science fiction because it was so much detail was paid to try to get it scientifically accurate. And you can't go past Dunkirk. I don't think I've ever seen a war movie that was done quite as originally as that. The way the time overlaps and jumps about was a very unique take on what would have otherwise been a pretty standard war military film. Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen a war film that wasn't really linear. They pretty much all are, especially when it comes to a battle, and this could have just been the same thing. But it doesn't. It jumps around. It's non-linear, which is a theme of Christopher Nolan's films. Non-linear storytelling, concepts of time, and paradoxes. I wish a lot more directors would pay the attention to detail that Nolan does in all of his films, and just put that little bit extra in when they come up with a story. Because he can make massively long epic films that aren't boring, they're fucking intense from start to finish. He has his traits, as I just mentioned, which all make his interpretation, his vision of a story, much more unique and much more original than most other directors. That's not writing off any other directors, they all have their own styles. But if you compare, let's say, the way Ridley Scott directs, if he had directed Dunkirk, it would have been a straight-up war movie that focuses on the evacuation in a lineal fashion. With Nolan, you still get the story, the war movie, with the story behind it, but the way he goes about it and presents it in a non-lineal fashion makes it a much more engaging story. Especially when you see it for the first time. The first time you notice the time jumps when Tom Hardy's flying over the ocean, you see the sunken ships and the oil slicks, and you're thinking, what the the hell? Like We haven't seen this yet. Who sunk the ships? Then it goes back to Chilean, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'll be referring to him as Chillian Murphy. With his character, the shivering soldier, he's picked up, you're thinking, well, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him go down yet, so how did he end up in the middle of the ocean waiting for rescue? Then after a few minutes, you start to catch on. Okay, they're doing a very clever trick with the editing and presenting it in a very non-lineal way. And I'd never seen a movie edited quite like Dunkirk when it came out. It didn't feel unnecessary. A lot of movies try to be very Tarantino and shoot things non-linearly, and they always suck. 
for the most part. There's a couple of films that have done it well, but most of them it just comes off like a very worn-out cliche. But when Nolan does it, it's on par with what Tarantino did with Pulp Fiction, doing things non-linearly, non-linearly, however you say it. Makes it a bit more interesting to the eye, especially if you do have a very big or long film. It does keep you guessing, it keeps you thinking, it keeps your mind active. A lot of movies you just kind of tend to switch off in some parts because you've kind of seen it all before or you've become used to the technique of the storytelling and you kind of anticipate what's going to happen even though you haven't seen the film before. Point in case being most superhero films these days, they all kind of follow that same story thread. If you've seen one Marvel origin story, you've pretty much seen them all. It's Obviously the stories are different and the characters, they're very formulamatic and they all, all follow the same story format. And who can forget Nolan's most underrated and underappreciated film, Tenet? There are so many possibilities in that film. It's one of the most clever action espionage films I think I've ever seen. It's like a James Bond film on steroids and LSD. It keeps you guessing the entire film and the, you know, the explosions and the, the action scenes at the end of it. Spoiler. Where the explosions happen in reverse and all the time bending things that happen in reverse, the effects in that are just incredible. And all those little subtle cues with the blue and the red signaling a difference in timelines. I've got to see that movie again. I've only seen it once. I've been meaning to watch it for a very long time. It keeps you guessing right from the start. And I'm still trying to figure out in what order the events happened in. There's so many little Easter eggs in it to find, and just when you think you've, and just when you find one and you figure it out and you feel like a genius, then you realize that no, that thing you've just figured out contradicts the last little Easter egg, and then you're back to square one. I'll have to rewatch and do a review on that film. It'd be interesting to see what it's like two years on. And this brings us down to Christopher Nolan's. The latest epic, Oppenheimer, about the renowned theoretical physicist and father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So this episode will look at Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I'll also be having a look at a book on Oppenheimer called The Oppenheimer Case, Security on Trial, by Philip M. Stern with the collaboration of Harold P. Green. So just before we get into the show, the Epic, and I do mean epic, lie of communism is still coming along. I've been trying to finish the script for a very long time. I'm pretty much writing nearly every day on it, trying to get it finished. And just when I think I've made a breakthrough, I realize there's a whole bunch more of the story that needs to be told. I've been working on that show for a year and a half. So I hope you'll appreciate it when it's finally ready. It is going to be massive. I had originally intended it to be like th three to four parts. I think it's probably going to be more like eight at this stage. It is a very fascinating and very, very, very deep dive into how communism spread. That's all I'm going to say. You'll have to wait till it's finished. I'm hoping that the first episode will be done by the end of the year at this stage because I do want to move on to some other topics and that's why I've done a lot of film reviews and themed shows this year is I haven't had enough time to research other big topics. So doing the movies is a quicker way I can keep producing episodes. I try to tie a bit of history into the films. So if you're wondering, has this become a film review show? No, it hasn't. I do like doing film reviews and I will be doing more of them. 
just at the moment that's kind of tidying me over until this one is finished so later this year or next year we can move into more fun topics such as aliens ufos history and conspiracies the stuff i'm always posting and talking about but haven't done a lot of shows on yet so without further ado let's get into tonight's show this is episode 51 of the truth tank christopher nolan's oppenheimer this will be a relatively spoiler-free episode, so if you haven't seen the film or are wanting to, it should be pretty safe from this point onwards. I will try my best to mention anything that might be a spoiler, but in case I forget, listener discretion is advised. Most of the spoilers will be more so technical and the way the film is shot, as opposed to plot or character points that I seem to do every time I do a film review. Just before we get into tonight's show... A quick word from the Book of the Dead podcast. Hi guys, I'm Courtney. And I'm Lisa. And we are the hosts of the Book of the Dead, a true crime podcast based out of New Jersey, where we tell you about the most obscure cases that you may have never heard of. So join us in the Book of the Dead library for another chapter of the Book of the Dead wherever you get your podcasts. Bye guys. You can find the Book of the Dead podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Give them a follow and a like, and help share the podcast around. And in keeping with the spirit of Christopher Nolan and his non-lineal style, this will be a non-lineal film review. I wanted to have some fun with this, I didn't want to do a straight stock standard film review, so I thought I might play around with some of the lineal details of the film and do it in a non-lineal way. I hope I don't fuck it up, or it becomes too jumbled and messy. But either way, you're not paying for it, so who cares? How do I describe Oppenheimer in one sentence? That's pretty easy. It's Nolan at his finest. The scope and scale of this film are huge. I mean, obviously it was shot for IMAX theatres, which unfortunately I didn't get to see because I don't think there is a IMAX theatre anymore where I live. I'm pretty sure it closed down years ago or during COVID and hasn't opened up. Either way, it's way too expensive and I am pretty cheap. I think it was like around the $50 mark or something for an IMAX film and I don't think there was very many sessions and unfortunately I don't think I'll ever see the film in 70mm IMAX so if you have seen it in the IMAX 70mm format you are one lucky prick I saw it on a conventional standard cinema screen and this film was still fantastic obviously you didn't get the same scope as the IMAX or how it was intended to be seen and some of the massive gigantic close-up scenes you don't kind of get the grandeur of them but either way this film is very much still watchable in a standard format as opposed to the IMAX so if that's putting you off from seeing it just go ahead and see the movie you're not going to regret it and much like Dunkirk this is another historical film done in a very original way and if it was handled handled by any other director I think this would be a very straight up historical biopic that we've seen many times before And we've seen this time and time again when it comes to historical films. They can get a little boring sometimes and they can get very weighed down in particular details because much like superhero films, they seem to follow a very stock standard format in a very lineal way. In keeping with Christopher Nolan's other films, Oppenheimer is not a lineal film. It does jump about quite a bit, but it constantly keeps your mind engaged. And it keeps you thinking and guessing and trying to work out what is happening. Not that it's an overly complex story, 
as it is history. It's more so a intense character study of a very complex and interesting man who was living in equally complex and interesting times. So right from the start, the film is well-paced. It's not slow or boring. It doesn't get really bogged down in any of some of the dialogue scenes. It's just the way it's shot. I mean, Christopher Nolan is constantly reinventing the way he shoots films and the way he uses angles to tell stories. You know, some of the scenes, you know, there'll be two characters talking, and I'm guessing this is probably where the upside of the IMAX comes in, is you have Robert Downey Jr. and Chillian Murphy talking. There's a window and you can see a figure in a park, which is Einstein. I'm guessing that on in the IMAX, that probably looked a lot better because there's a lot more depth and scope to the scene. But even on a regular screen, you still get this sense of depth and scope. There's a lot of scenes that use close-ups and a lot of wide shots that help tell the story. You have those intense close-ups of the face where you can really see into Chilean Murphy's eyes and you can you get the depth and the intensity to them. Because if you've seen any photos of the real Robert Oppenheimer, he is a very intense-looking man. He's got these quite piercing, intense eyes, and that really comes across with Chilean's performance and some of those close-ups of his face, especially around the eyes. The eyes are a big focal point, warning spoiler. And then you get these other big wide shots that also help tell the story from the other side of the fence, that this is a big, epic, expansive story, especially when you come to the desert scenes later on. And talking about the pacing, this is not an easy thing to do when the film is three hours and nine seconds long. This is a massive film, but it doesn't seem like a tedious three-hour film. A lot of historical films now are, and always have been, towards the three-hour mark. But this film is very well-paced, and what I noticed first off, there's a lot of very quickly shot and edited scenes combined with some longer and slower ones, so obviously the editing has to set the standard of the pace. But there are some longer and more intimate scenes, and there's a lot of quickly cut-together scenes that really do help keep the focus and intensity of the film and it keeps it it keeps the plot and the story driving along and this comes into play later on in the film when there's the race against the Nazis to build a bomb it helps set the urgency and intensity and it definitely makes it feel like there is a race going on that's combined with a very intense soundtrack that uses some very interesting elements such as foot stomping and banging to up the intensity as well as your you know, traditional movie-type score. And unfortunately, we don't get Hans Zimmer this time. He's a long-time collaborator with Christopher Nolan. But in his place, we get a very talented, younger composer called Lugwood Jornsson, or Jornsson, however you pronounce that name. He's done a lot of films lately. I've seen his name pop up quite a lot. I'm pretty sure he did the, the main theme and the score for The Mandalorian. The only criticism I have with the runtime is I think there's a couple of smaller scenes that probably could have been trimmed. Some of the fat could have been cut out just a little bit. Mainly some of the longer, more drawn-out court scenes. The shorter ones were fine, and this is a bit of a spoiler, so cover your ears now. Towards the end of the film, you get more intensive court and the legal hearing scenes. And some of them, I think, are a little drawn out. 
it's not so much of an issue towards the start and middle of the film, but by the time you see it later on, there's so many characters and events and so many dramatic things have taken place, it can be very hard to try and take in, especially if you don't have a law degree. But it works either way. The other impressive thing about this film is the monstrous cast list. Pretty much everyone is in it. It's a massive ensemble cast film, and there's a bunch of other big A-list names who have mostly all won Academy Awards, who take very minor roles in this film, which is really good to see. But it's also a little strange to see, too, because I think all of them have been Oscar winners, and yet they're happy to help bring Nolan's vision to life. I won't say too much on that in case I give away a couple of surprises. But one of the most impressive members of the cast is Josh Harnett. I haven't seen him in a movie in a long time, and that goes for uh, some of the other members of the cast. They haven't done a film in a while, especially a few of the Oscar-winning actors. But back to Harnett. I haven't seen Josh Harnett in a film in the cinema in years. I don't think I've even seen one of his straight-to-DVD films in a long time. He's definitely one of my favorite actors, and he has aged fantastically. I think he looks better now than he did in The Faculty. And when he was younger, he always had kind of really squinty eyes, and it's kind of like he hasn't grown into his face. I think he looks better and younger now at 45 than he did when he was 25. The Faculty was, I think, the first thing I saw him in. He was in a lot of bigger movies when he was young, like Pearl Harbor, Black Hawk Down, one of my favorite films. And fuck, that movie came out, well, like, just over 20 years ago, 2001, 40 Days and 40 Nights. And then he dropped off the radar for a long while, and he, he's returned in the last couple of years. I haven't seen a couple of his other films in the cinemas. In case you're thinking, yeah, he has been in a lot more films, you just haven't seen him. What else has he done? Sin City, that was awesome. So he actually has done, I'm going through his filmography now, and he has done quite a few films. A lot of them are straight to DVD titles, Halloween movies, 30 Days of Night, yeah, that was interesting. Wrath of Man, 2021, and Operation Fortune, I haven't seen that. The only criticisms I really have with Oppenheimer is that it can be very hard to keep up with sometimes. It can be hard to keep up with the cast and and some of the events happening because, as I mentioned, it is non-linear and it can go back and forth a little bit. It's not too bad. It doesn't jump around too much like some other films do. The biggest issue is just trying to keep up with the cast. It's kind of a revolving door of celebrities and people you've seen in movies or haven't seen in films for a while. The only issue with that is they don't all get a equal amount of time. Obviously, it's not really about them. They, they're pieces of the puzzle that Nolan's putting together. But there's some characters that you kind of think, are they going to come back and they don't appear or they might appear later on in the film and there's a lot of names of characters you're trying to keep up with because there is a lot of people in this movie. There is a lot of characters to keep up and contend with and just trying to remember who everybody is and what their roles are. Nolan's vision is definitely unique. I've been a fan of his for a very long time, like most people out there have. He has a very unique way of making his films. They're always original. He doesn't seem to borrow from himself too much. He obviously has his style and his traits. But some directors get very indulgent in their own visions 
and when things get boring or they're out of ideas, they, they're pretty quick to go back onto some of their old traits. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. Nolan, Cameron, and Tarantino are three examples of filmmakers that don't allow themselves to become comfortable with their own talent or their own traits. They're constantly innovating and going outside of their comfort zones to try to achieve an effect or just to try to get that new thing we haven't seen on a screen. And that's a huge issue at the moment. There's not really a lot of directors like that anymore. I think 90% of directors that make films and TV shows these days are literally just there for the paycheck. They're hired by Netflix or studios just to make films, make consumer pieces, get them out, move on to the next project. They don't have the love and care and attention to detail that Nolan does, or Tarantino, or James Cameron, Ridley Scott, Spielberg, etc. Directing seems to be less about the art form and more about producing cheap, consumable content. Compare that with a Christopher Nolan film. You pay for a Nolan film, you are going to get an original, well-crafted, well-thought-out, in-depth film. I've never been disappointed in a Christopher Nolan film. A lot of his films make you think, and I do think a lot of people in the audience don't like that. They like to just have an easy story that they can process. I think some people are turned off by the for lack of a better better word, the level of intellectualism you need to figure out some of his stories. I like the fact that he makes you think and you have to pay attention to these films. You can't just switch off and look at the pretty faces on the screen and just watch the action. You're always having to think because just when you think you've got it figured out, he likes to surprise you, which he does in all of his films. And some of his traits are obviously the non-lineal way he makes his films, concepts of time, and paradoxes. All three of those traits are at play in Oppenheimer. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that there's probably members of the audience that feel insecure if their intelligence is questioned or put into line, especially if you're talking with your friends about the film afterwards and, and you're the one that looks like a fuckhead because you didn't pay attention or you switched off halfway through one of his films, or you just couldn't figure it out. Nolan never disappoints. He is a true master storyteller. I love seeing his films on the big screen. You're always guaranteed a level of quality. And that's a very hard thing to do these days, especially when there are so many crap films around. Most of them are only worth about half the ticket price, if that. And a lot of those big studio films definitely fall short and miss the mark. They promise a lot and only deliver about half. Where I love the quality that you get from a Nolan film. And you know he's not a guy that takes 10 years to make a film either. Like, what, Tenet came out two, three years ago? And in that time, he's already got Oppenheimer out. It'll take most people five years to write a film that complex. But for him, it just seems to be standard. This is just how his mind works. He seems to just excel with a complex story and characters. I think about the biggest gap between Nolan films has been about four years. I think that was between Interstellar and Dunkirk. His first film, Tarantella, was a short film in 1989. I actually didn't even know he went back that far. I thought he was came about in the 90s. He doesn't make another short film until 96. And that was Larceny, followed up in 97 by Doodlebug. 
which is followed up again by the following in 1998, which is a, an hour and nine minute feature film, I suppose a short feature. His first big film is 2000's Memento, followed up in 2002 by Insomnia, followed up in 2005 by Batman Begins. Then the next year, The Prestige in 2006. Two years later, The Dark Knight in 2008, followed by 2010's Inception, 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar in 2014. Quay was a short he did in 2015. The biggest gaps are between Interstellar in 2014 and Dunkirk in 2017, and Dunkirk and Tenant in 2002, and Oppenheimer obviously in 2023. So he hasn't had a lot of time off in those 20 years or so. He Every couple of years he's got a film out, and obviously it takes a long time to think of it. He's thinking of the next project, why he's working on the current one. I think he, I saw behind the scenes with him. He was telling Christian Bale his next film was going to be about dreams. And that's all that he'd say about it. And I think he's had the idea for Tenant for 10 years or so. I think he originally came up with a film about time travel back in around one of the, the first or second Batman films. And this coming from a man that didn't go to film school. I found that out the other day. I thought that was very interesting. So I reckon I mentioned on a previous podcast when I try to apply for a local film school, one of the failures who was running the course asked me who my directing inspirations were, and one of them was Christopher Nolan. And he had to make that remark that, I think he's a pretty good director, but he's an okay writer. And I really wanted to say to the guy, I'm sure Mr. Nolan would see that as a compliment, especially coming from a guy with jeans and thongs in his mid-50s who has never made a movie. What's the old saying? Those that can't do, teach. It's very interesting. If he wasn't a filmmaker, God help cinema. Because he's definitely carrying the torch of quality. Every one of his movies is unique. And this is a guy that seems to be getting better, not worse. So think of where we'd be if we were all living in a world with no Interstellar, Dunkirk, The Dark Knight trilogy, Inception... It'd be horrifying. It'd be a very boring and bleak film landscape. And like a lot of you out there, I get very excited when I see Christopher Nolan's name attached to anything. I mean, he can make an art film and it'd be riveting. Uh, sound like I'm gushing about Christopher Nolan, but I generally do get excited when I see Christopher Nolan's name attached to a film. You know you're going to get an experience and a good story, which is becoming a very hard thing to try and do these days. It's becoming even harder now with the greed of the studios and the rise of AI and the writers and actors strikes. I just hope we don't see less films like Oppenheimer and Tenet and Dunkirk. And hopefully that can get settled soon and we can have some decent content produced once again. And going back to IMAX for a minute, I would have loved to have seen those scenes with the atoms smashing and the raindrops in the pond all those little small elements on a gigantic screen. Because those scenes in the movie that do give it this artistic quality, they're not pretentious in any way. They are actually helping to tell the story, with, especially with the water drops hitting the pond. The circular motion they make is mentioned by Oppenheimer as the waves or circular nature of atoms. So even scenes like that that 
that are artistic survey very distinctive point nothing in this film seems like it's forced or it's filler it actually seems like the movie was originally intended to be about six hours and three hours is about the bare minimum they could have gotten there's so much happening in this film it's literally jam-packed from start to finish and as soon as it starts it doesn't let up that pace has to keep going because it's such a huge story to tell and even those little artistic scenes that make up a good portion of the film serve a purpose. They don't seem forced or unnecessary. They help tell the story. And I think if Nolan didn't make this film, a lesser director would go for this big, grand, over-the-top scenes to explain atoms colliding and how that relates to nature. You can imagine if Michael Bay did it, he'd have atoms smashing and nuclear bombs going off every 10 minutes in this film. And that's the thing that I really loved about it, is that doesn't really happen. It's, the bomb is like a secondary subplot of the film. It's all about the complexity of the mind behind it. It is a very intense character study, and there's a lot of things I was surprised about to his character. He's a very interesting man. The raindrops hitting the pond are handled and crafted in just the same way that the bigger plot points of this film are. It's very simple, subtle scenes like this that you get a real sense of excitement when these are inserted into the film. They're just raindrops on a pond, but the way it's being shot and how artistically it's being done makes it all the more exciting. In the hands of a lesser director, this would have just been artistic twaddle that would have served no purpose. And it goes back to what I was saying, that everything in this film is necessary and it all ties in together. Best way I can describe this film, it is a fucking work of art. All the elements line up. It is just masterfully and beautifully directed. It does sound like I'm gushing about Nolan, and that's because I am. Because this film is as close to a masterpiece as you're ever going to get. One of the other things I really loved about the film is there was no fucking green screen. Everything you see in the film is real. There's real sets, and they become a thing of the past. A majority of films today don't have many props or sets. It's green screen with a couple of things the actors interact with and it was so good to see a film made like films were made back in the day this definitely has a old world feel about it there is very little special effects in this film i've heard someone say that this film doesn't have any special effects which i do find bullshit because most movies today do have some element of special effects and spoiler warning the scenes with the explosions all around the world and the, the plane and the some of the, the rockets and stuff you see. Some of those little little scenes that are inserted into the film. But I love just seeing sets and actors again. And it proves that you don't need mountains of special effects and explosions and CGI characters to make a film interesting these days. Nolan has just proven that old world filmmaking is still relevant in 2023. And you don't need mountains of special effects, digital characters, over-the-top action set pieces, green screens and all that other bullshit to make a good film. You can make a brilliant film without those elements. The main ingredient is the mind behind it. Who's writing and directing it? I think the Marvel films can probably learn a lot from that. Is maybe dial down some of the visual effects and focus more on the story and the characters. Because the first Iron Man is a great film because it relies less on the action 
set pieces that some of the later Marvel films do and the visual effects and focuses more on the character of Tony Stark. And that's probably a reason why the Batman films always seem to do very well and work is because it's a character study on Bruce Wayne slash Batman. It relies less on the visual effects, even though that plays a part in the story and there's nothing wrong with that. It's more about the ethics and morals of the character of Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And these are concepts that Nolan obviously played with in the Dark Knight trilogy, especially in the Dark Knight when it comes with comes to the Joker. That film didn't have a lot of special effects in it either, and it is still a masterpiece over 10 years later. Now, can we say the same thing about Zack Snyder's Justice League? There's more special effects in those movies than I think the Dark Knight trilogy combined. Ben Affleck's Batman is interesting. It's an interesting interpretation of the character. I did like what he did with it. It's just a shame we didn't get the Batfleck Batman film. But Justice League, there was way too many special effects. It just didn't feel authentic. Yeah, it was a good movie. The director's cut is good too. But it just seemed, let's just kind of do the Avengers and stick Batman and Superman in it, which, yeah, obviously that is the Justice League. But the Avengers was this huge, over-the-top special effects extravaganza. It was a good movie. It worked. The only issue with that is that every superhero film that came out after that tried to do exactly the same thing. Yeah, obviously superhero movies have to have some type of visual effects in them. But then you look at the Matt Reeves Batman that came out last year. Not a lot of special effects, mostly practical. Once again, that different interpretation of Batman came down to the same core elements that Nolan's Batman came down to, which was ethics and morality of the character. And Robert Pattinson's interpretation of Batman is very different to Christian Bale, or Ben Affleck, or Michael Keaton. Pattinson spends more time in the suit than the other Batman. He It's more focused on Batman than it is Bruce Wayne. But it goes to show that it's the story and character, specifically the characterization of Batman Bruce Wayne, that makes the Batman films interesting and not the special effects. Rant about Batman over. The other thing I really loved is that Nolan can make the most subtle or mundane elements or scenes seem really interesting by using lighting, angles, and sound. There are some very intense scenes in this film, and spoiler alert, that are literally just a close-up of Chilean Murphy's face with some creative lighting and sound. There's no, you know, bombs going off all over the place. There's no gigantic scenes of armies colliding. It's just a close-up on a very stressed-out Oppenheimer with some cool lighting and a couple of interesting camera angles. And that's it. It was as intense as anything else. It didn't have 57 different frames in it or scenes mashing together like you know, Michael-based Transformers films. You didn't have 137 different shots or elements to watch Bumblebee turn into a Transformer and blow up a building. It was just a close-up of a guy's face in a courtroom. And he does this several times during the film, and it is fucking brilliant. This would have looked even better in IMAX. Obviously, the IMAX captures all the details in the face, so you can really express what Mr. Oppenheimer is feeling and the emotions that are trying to be conveyed. And Oppenheimer is one of those films you're going to have to see a few times to really appreciate it. I'm definitely going to have to see it a few times to absorb everything that was going on. 
and to taking all the characters and all the little details in the background that you miss the first time you see it. And at its core, Oppenheimer is an intensive character study about a very complex man in complex times. The backdrop of this film is pre-present and post-World War II and beyond, not to give too much away. A majority of it focuses around World War II and the race to build the bomb and beat the Nazis and the backlash that came about in the years following. Oppenheimer is a complex man in dramatic times. Everyone in this film played their part perfectly. The entire cast was outstanding. Chillian Murphy as the title character was brilliant and I would not be surprised if he gets an Oscar nomination. Actually, be, I'd be very surprised if he didn't. He looks like him, talks like him, moves like him. Chillian Murphy really takes his acting chops to the next level. I mean, he was always a good actor before this, but I mean, he really pushes himself outside of the realms of comfort. He's done a lot of movies over the years. He's played some pretty iconic characters. Scarecrow from the Dark Knight trilogy and Thomas Shelby from Peaky Blinders are probably his most well-known and iconic and I think you can add Oppenheimer to that because he was just above and beyond. If you see photos of him and the real Robert Oppenheimer, the resemblance is pretty uncanny. And obviously like no actor is going to 100% look like the person they're playing. It's the little details that make the character, such as how he walks, how he talks, how he wears the hat, the clothing, getting used to smoking a pipe and chain smoking all the time because the real Oppenheimer smoked a lot. And unfortunately, that's what killed him. He got throat cancer. But also having to get used to using a pipe, which is you know, not a common thing anymore. But the hardest thing would have been getting into physics. Some people can get into it easily. Others cannot. I saw it with my partner, and she really appreciated the detail the film went into regarding the physics. She studied physics in uni. She didn't go on with it, unfortunately. She probably should have. But she got all of that, and... There's a scene in the movie where he mentions something about not being good at maths and a tutor says, well, you don't have to do to understand physics, which she appreciated. I would have liked him to go into the physics a little more, into the splitting of atoms and all that, but you know, I, I am a sucker for detail. I also don't know a hell of a lot about physics, but at the same time, it's probably good that he didn't do this because it would have added another 30 minutes to the film. Christopher Nolan is notorious for doing that in his films. He doesn't overly explain things which is a good thing because it can get a bit annoying when films do that and ultimately it just makes the film longer and more boring I I do like how he just drops you straight in the action and you have to keep up at your own pace but going back to Chillian Murphy I haven't really seen him in too many leading roles I think this is his by far his biggest leading role I mean, he's been in movies where he's been the star or one of the stars but this takes it to a new level He's worked with Nolan a few times in The Dark Knight and Inception and Dunkirk, but he was the main bad guy, I guess, for parts of Batman Begins, and he comes back in The Dark Knight as more or less a cameo. He wasn't really the star of that. And in Dunkirk, he has a small part. It's a good part. But that's a kind of a weird movie because there's no one really in that movie that is the star of the film. I mean, you only see Tom Hardy's face once in it in the entire movie. And besides Thomas Shelby and Peaky Blinders, that's about the only other thing I've seen him in where he is the lead role. He definitely does go above and beyond. And the one thing I noticed that you'd probably definitely notice if you see the movie in IMAX 
is Chillian Murphy's eyes don't look so dead. He has psycho eyes in a lot of his films. And there seems to be a lot more depth and clarity to them. I don't know if that was enhanced or if they deliberately worked on that. I think they did because there's a lot of close-ups of his eyes in it. And the real Oppenheimer had very expressive eyes. There's a couple of scenes where he has that psychotic smile, the psycho face from the Dark Knight movies. In a few scenes where he's uh, he's smiling, he's introduced to someone, which I got a bit of a kick out of. And one of the other unsung heroes of the film is Emily Blunt. She definitely goes out of her comfort zone as well. It's a very different Emily Blunt to the one we're used to seeing. She often plays a lot more glamorous roles, and in this she plays his wife, who has a lot of problems of her own. She's an alcoholic and not the best mother, and she plays it very well. And these are obviously characters that are spanning giant gaps of time, and the characters do physically change over the course of the film. But it's all the subtle differences and the way the characters grow and expand over the film that really make it worth watching. Well, that's just one of the reasons it's worth watching. Christopher Nolan, Nuclear Bombs, they're two other pretty good reasons. One of the people that nearly steals the show is Matt Damon. It's a very different Matt Damon to the one that we're used to seeing. Damon plays General Leslie Groves. He's a pretty intense character. He's the one that recruits Oppenheimer for the Manhattan Project and asks him to lead it. The two become friends over the course of the film. Murphy and Damon have a lot of chemistry and share a good portion of the screen time together. The other thing I really appreciated was all the on-set locations, such as Los Alamos in the middle of the desert. I don't know if it was shot in the real Los Alamos, probably not, but the desert was pretty stunning. They had snow-capped mountains in the background, expansive deserts and rocks to the other side, and this purpose-built town right in the middle. It was really cool to see actual sets and the work that had gone into actually building a big set like Los Alamos rather than just try to do it all in a studio or on a green screen. The lighting was also really good too. It felt very natural. The whole setting of the desert and the rocks was very naturalistic and uranium comes from rocks. So it was kind of cool that they incorporated that into the background. And it just gave a film like that a really unique flavor. I know, it, I know it's a true story and there's some things you can't change. But it just gave it this really cool feel of these scientists in the desert doing all these experiments trying to build a bomb. I also liked the parts with the horses and the desert with the snow-capped mountains was really cool. And the real Oppenheimer liked big open spaces. He liked the desert and those arid kind of conditions. It has kind of a calming effect too. I think on him, but also on the film. I hate to say it, but it was actually refreshing not seeing green screens and visual effects and just seeing everything practical. It was really a nod to old school filmmaking. And I really hope this is a trend that catches on and a lot more films do this. Or go back to using more practical effects rather than just special effects all the time. Visual effects, whatever you want to call them. And smoking played a huge role in this film, which is funny because I bet they had a lot of trouble getting past the censors because you can't smoke in anything anymore. And having the main character, who is a chain smoker, who smokes not only cigarettes but also a pipe, might be a bit, do I dare say it, problematic in this day and age. And a lot of the other characters smoked. I mean, most people did back then. And the other thing I really loved in terms of practical effects was the real explosions. And a bit of a spoiler warning... 
there's not a hell of a lot of explosions, despite the fact the film is about a guy that built a bomb. It's a bit more complex than that, but you get what I mean. All the explosions in this were real. It felt like you were watching an episode of Mythbusters. There's a scene where they're behind a wooden barricade and they are testing one of the bomb components. And, and I'm not, I wouldn't call it a spark, but you see like the, the flash from the, the deck cord and then you, the thing blows up and then you hear the sound afterwards. So it wasn't the typical movie explosion where you know, it blows up and there's the sound and all that happening at the same time. It was the turning of the key, the flash, the explosion the sound and then you got the force afterwards so that was really cool seeing an actual real explosion no tacky visual effects explosions some of them are good but a lot of them just suck and they're very obvious that it's not something really blowing up and yeah that's probably better for the environment but in terms of what looks good on screen nothing beats an old-fashioned real-life explosion and it was very nice to see a huge blockbuster movie like this using and utilizing only practical effects. I mean, you're seeing real desert, real mountains, real snow-capped peaks. It was real. It was real enough you could kind of taste it and smell it through the screen. You got a real sense that you were there rather than this is just ones and zeros on a computer telling me that this is a room or a mountain or a desert or whatever. I like special effects as much as the next person. There are some movies where it's necessary, like Star Wars or science fiction films. But when it's overdone all the time and you become so used to seeing it, and every second film that seems to come out now is either superhero-related or you know part of some anthology series, it does wear a bit thin. So when you do see practical effects, it's a nice change. And going back to some of the horrific visual effects we've seen in some of the superhero films this year, like The Flash and... Ant-Man and the Wasp, the Quantumverse, whatever the fuck that film's called. There are some scenes in it that are pretty horrific, and that's because things are rushed, they're not done properly. With this, what you see is what you're actually seeing. You're seeing a real mountain as opposed to a one and a zero on a computer screen telling me that, that what I'm looking at is supposed to be a mountain. I do think they're going to have a bit more science to this film, maybe a bit more of a breakdown of the physics and the subatomic particles and on the... Obviously, that might be a bit hard to film. I thought that's where special effects might come in handy, but this didn't happen, and you know what? It wasn't a bad thing. It just means I've got to go read more about physics and learn myself. The other thing I haven't mentioned yet was the scenes in black and white. It's a very arty and creative thing to do. Black and white isn't obviously seen much anymore. There's a few films that have used black and white, more so to be arty, more than anything. But in this, the black and white really works and you barely notice it. Because some scenes, it will jump from colour, then it'll go to black and white. It doesn't stick out and you're not thinking, oh, well, that's just suddenly turned black and white. And a bit of a spoiler alert. But I did like how Nolan used the black and white to really original effect. It wasn't just for aesthetics or artistic sake. It served the purpose in the story. First time the black and white pops up, you think, okay, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Is this just, just to be arty? The second time you see it, you start to think, oh, this is stuff that hasn't happened yet. This is all in the future, and I'm guessing we'll come back to it. And like Christopher Nolan loves to do, he loves to play with concepts of time and paradoxes. And it doesn't become apparent until later in the film what timeline the black and white is highlighting. It's done in a similar way that the colours blue and red were used in Tenet, 
to signalize past and future and the different timelines intersecting. And this is a spoiler. Until that point, you think the color was happening now or the, the future events and the black and white was the past. But that wasn't the case. The black and white was the future and the color was the past. I think I got that right. I think I just confused myself. To get further clarification on this, I had to look it up. There's an article on Insider titled, You're probably watching Oppenheimer wrong. Here's why some of the movie is in black and white and other scenes are in color. By Christina Atkin, July 21st, 2023. Oppenheimer contains scenes in both color and black and white. It is not to denote past versus present. Color scenes are supposed to be from Oppenheimer's perspective. The black and white ones are supposed are from Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr. Interesting, I got that all wrong. I thought it was yeah, past and present. It's just another way Christopher Nolan likes to fuck with his audience, is by doing things like this to make you think the entire way through the film. And getting you so confused, you start to contradict what you thought it meant, and then you have to go look it up. Director Christopher Nolan's three-hour bio thriller, Oppenheimer, opens with a flurry of scenes bouncing back and forth between black and white and colour. Upon first watch, it may be a bit confusing to viewers. The usual assumption is that scenes in colour showcase a current timeline, while black and white scenes signify flashbacks into the past, but that's not what's going on in Oppenheimer. Nolan's use of black and white and colour are not to denote past versus present. J. Robert Oppenheimer, Chilean Murphy, is seen in colour, whether he's college age or in the later half of his life. Sometimes he also appears in black and white sequences. Robert Downey Jr.'s character, former Atomic Energy Commission chairman Louis Strauss, is also seen in both colour and black and white scenes, sometimes in both the future and the past. Robert Downey Jr. has a lot more scenes in black and white than he does in colour as opposed to Chilean Murphy, I did notice. The artistic styling is used to highlight the juxtaposition between the film's protagonist Oppenheimer and the eventual nemesis Strauss. So if you haven't seen the film, do not listen past this point. It's your final warning. Scenes in colour are supposed to be viewed from Oppenheimer's point of view. Those in black and white are supposed to be from Strauss's account. But it's a little deeper than that. Production notes provide provided to Insider explain that Nolan decided that the scenes told through Oppenheimer's perspective would be in colour. He also wrote in the first person an unconventional choice for a screenplay. It's interesting. With occasional cutaways to evocative surreal imagery that symbolically expressed his interior world. The scenes that centre on Strauss's would be in black and white. This is a quote from Nolan. At various points we try to borrow into Oppenheimer's psyche and take the audience on his emotional journey. Nolan adds in the production notes, that was a challenge of the film, to tell the story of a person who was involved in what was ultimately an extraordinary destructive sequence of events, but done for the right reasons, and tell it from his point of view. Of writing in the first person, Nolan added, it's a strange thing to do, but it made it clear to anyone who read the script that we, the audience, are on a ride with Oppenheimer. We're looking over his shoulder, we're in his head, we're going everywhere with him. End of article. Yeah, that's very true. The film does feel like you are on a journey with him. You're not just watching a straight biopic, it's more personal than that. You're definitely inside his head. 
trying to figure things out at the same time he is. So I got it all wrong. I thought it was to symbolize past and present timelines, but I stand corrected. It was actually more complex than that. Well done again, Christopher Nolan. You had me confused as well. That's even more of a creative way to do it than just simply for artistic sake. Having two different characters from two point of views, and that does come into play a bit later on because everything starts to fit. And then you're like, ah, okay, that makes sense now. So some other more drawn-out court scenes do make sense a bit later. And also the black and white just fits the tone and style of the film. It's set in the 1940s. It's made in a very old-fashioned way, so having black and white kind of fits. The black and white also fits the style of the film. It's set in the 30s and 40s. It has a lot of practical effects, lots of sets and locations. It's made in a very old-fashioned way, and it feels like a definite tip of the cap to the way films used to be made. The other thing I haven't really mentioned is the music. The music was really good, despite Hans Zimmer not heading up the score. It fit, it had that Hans Zimmer-esque kind of sound about it. Very moving, very emotional, but also very original. It wasn't a distinctive uh, soundtrack as the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Interstellar, or Dunkirk, but it was still pretty good. It definitely did fit the film and help give it another element. The music had a haunting and intense quality about it. Not quite as intense as Hans Zimmer, and it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with it, but you can't get everything. Especially when it came to the scenes with the bomb, it just helped amp up the excitement and the intensity, because there are some fucking intense scenes in this film and some of the best parts in the soundtrack weren't so much composed scores it was the stomping of feet and the banging noises music i'm not sure you'd call it a a song but it's all part of the soundtrack in the end and talking about robert danny jr as lewis strauss i think he might have just won a academy award for best supporting actor his performance is outstanding and that's the only problem with Robert Downey Jr. is over the last 10 years or so, we've become so used to him playing the one character over and over again in Tony Stark. And this is the first movie he's done in a long time that is not a Marvel film. I mean, he's done a, he's done a couple since then. And I think he's had a bit of time off, but it was nice to see him back on the screen because he is such a fucking talented actor and we don't see him enough in roles like this. And that's a problem. Once you've played a character so many times, you can get a bit typecast into that genre. And it was really nice to see him away from Marvel and Tony Stark. He was brilliant in those films, not knocking them. I'm just saying that he's such a talented actor. He needs to be in a lot more stuff. I think the last movie I saw him in was that Dr. Doolittle. And that was fucking terrible. I'll just leave it at that. I saw an interview with Robert Downey Jr. saying he prepared for the role by looking at his grandfather's life. Don't think he knew his grandfather, but he said he prepared for the role by getting into that frame of mind. Because he was saying that everything his grandfather did was in service of his country and he wanted to go into that type of mindset in order to play Strauss, who is a character that is serving his country. And in one sense is serving his country, even if he does have a couple of personal issues. The same way the black and white helps give you the differing perspectives of the characters. He's very much the opposite to Oppenheimer. 
and this is a huge movie that I think will do well, that and Barbie. Barbie's made like half a billion in the first weekend, which is the most successful film of this year, I'm pretty sure. And Oppenheimer has made 174 million so far, in roughly just under its first week at time of recording. There's a big comparison between those two films, saying, oh, Barbie is ahead of Oppenheimer in the first weekend. Well, of course it is. It's a fucking movie about a plastic doll that's been around for fucking 60 years and it's got Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling in it. It's a colourful, happy film. Of course it's going to do better than Oppenheimer. You know, it's a film that appeals to a huge audience. It's being marketed better than pretty much any movie in recent history. It looks colourful. It's aimed at kids and it came out during the school holidays. Oppenheimer is clearly the better film. But the kids' film, based on a toy, is probably going to do better than a three-hour dramatic biopic about the man who invented the atomic bomb. Doubt Barbie will win any Academy Awards. Oppenheimer probably will. Although Christopher Nolan doesn't really like the Academy or playing by the rules of the Oscars campaign and doing all that bullshit public relations crap, he'd rather make movies. Oppenheimer will definitely make its money back. It only cost $100 million to make, which is incredible by today's figures, where you consider that the average action blockbuster is like 200, 200 plus million these days. Any superhero movie is at least $250 million, and this did that for under half, which is impressive. So a little word to Hollywood, start making movies with practical effects and sets again, and you can save some money. Speaking of budgets and practical effects, this brings up one of the focal points of the film, and that is the scene with the atomic bomb. Spoiler alert. The scene is very intense. I won't give too much away. As you could probably have guessed by now, a film about the inventor of the atomic bomb probably does have a scene with the atomic bomb in it. But I really like the way this film was handled and the way it was shot, with all the guys lying on the ground on mattresses, putting sunblock on and welding goggles. It did have a intensity about it. And there's a scene, not to give too much away, before the bomb where it's raining at night and Oppenheimer and Groves are talking in one of the wooden sheds. The doors open, the rain's pouring in, and it's such a fucking cool scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film besides all the scenes on set on trains. I did get a bit of a kick out of that when he mentions how the train lines intersect and that's where they should build Los Alamos. It rains before the night before and they have to wait for perfect conditions in order to drop the bomb so the weather patterns don't, the wind and the weather doesn't carry the nuclear fallout miles away from where it should be. I love the fact that this is actually a big tower they built in the middle of the desert. It just makes it look really authentic. And if you see the real pictures of the bomb test, the scenes where they bring the bomb in on the truck and it's got the sticky tape all over it, that's how it actually looked. They've recreated every patch of tape on it. The tent where they do the final checks and they put the uranium in, all that was just so perfectly recreated in the film. And the, the countdown scene and the music and the intensity, everything's black, then... The bomb goes off, and it's just this gigantic flash of light. No sound. It was really realistic, like you're watching an actual atomic bomb test. And then, you know, after so many seconds, you get the 
shockwave and the blast. It felt very real, and it was just one of the best scenes of the film. Someone in the theater walked out a few minutes before that, and I didn't see them come back. And this is this is a fair while into the movie, so you're not going to get your money back if you try to. I, they might have come back, but I'm pretty sure they didn't. It's happened a few times in the last movies I've been to. Most of the times when I go to the movies, they only have 15 to 20 people, and there's usually somebody that walks out and doesn't come back. Or maybe I just didn't care because I was too busy watching the film. So as I was saying about the nature of paradoxes and concepts of time Nolan likes to play with, I've always wondered, does he do this just to make the film more interesting, or does he do this deliberately to fuck with the audience and confuse people? Seems like a bit of both. And I've always wanted a movie about the atomic bomb. It would be cool to make one about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the impact that had. But the scene about the bomb is more than just a bomb going off. It's the impact it had and still has. It's the death of one era and the birth of the atomic age. Because the world was never the same after that. Remember my teacher saying that particles of the nuclear bomb tests are still travelling around the world or... Anyone who was born after the time of the nuclear tests, if they put a Geiger counter over their bones, they would have show a higher level of radioactive activity than someone who was born pre-atomic tests or something like that. Which is not surprising because it's, it's everywhere, I guess. The atomic radioactive particles are everywhere. I mean, we're exposed to them more now than anyone any other generation through x-rays and medical equipment. Every time you go to the fucking airport, like if you're a frequent flyer, you should probably take some precautions because you have no idea what long-term exposure to those things is doing. And I guarantee the airport security isn't being upfront with the long-term side effects of x-ray scanners. That does make sense. In the years after the first bombs were dropped, the world tested nuclear bombs on a pretty regular basis up until the 90s. It's actually hard to believe that that was still going on. I remember seeing that. So when I was a kid, the French government were testing nuclear weapons off the coast of was it Western Australia or Queensland or somewhere like that. And there was a huge protest by Greenpeace and a lot of other people who didn't want that to happen because it was going to obviously you know, wipe out a lot of marine life. But it was very close to... Either the Great Barrier, I don't think it was the Great Barrier Reef, but it was somewhere next, somewhere like that, a, a pristine reef. And the French wanted to test nuclear weapons underwater, which is the safest way to do it because the salt water dissipates most of the radioactive material over a period of time or something like that. Anyway, I'm rambling, moving on. Going back to what I was saying about Christopher Nolan in his non linear style and how that worked in Dunkirk. And obviously Oppenheimer is a historical biopic. A good example of how things can get kind of boring and a bit mundane would be Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. It's a great film, but it's a stock standard historical biopic, unlike Oppenheimer, that does keep you interested over the course of the film. The Aviator is great until probably the last like 40 or so minutes where there's a court case and a if that was non-lineal, that could be a far more interesting movie because Howard Hughes was a very interesting man, similar in complexities to Oppenheimer. Howard Hughes was a bit more nuts. 
That would have been a hell of a lot more interesting if it was a bit more non-linear and maybe a bit more creative. It's got very cool cinematography and top-notch acting and directing and all that, but I've only seen it once, and that was quite a while ago, but I remember there being a very drawn-out court scene that got very tedious towards the end. As opposed to the, some of the courtroom scenes in Oppenheimer, they're a lot more dramatic and they're very intense due to the elements such as lighting, sound, directing, and editing. And that's another huge part of this film is the editing. The editing will probably win an Academy Award or at least get a nomination because it's fucking outstanding. Just like the editing in Dunkirk, it's a very similar style. It wouldn't have been an easy movie to edit. There's a lot of stuff to keep up with. It's a huge long movie. And the fact that it is non-linear makes it very hard to try to keep things in order and coherent. It also be made a hell of a lot harder by the character arcs and journeys that the character's going throughout the movie. And the fact that it's not just five or so years it's focusing on, it's a huge timeline and it covers Oppenheimer as a nervous student studying at college to making a name for himself teaching a relatively unknown form of theoretical physics in Berkeley, to him building the bomb, and the troubles he faced in his later life. The movie is such an interesting character study because it's you don't see a lot of characterization like that in movies anymore. And this film, not only is the character of Oppenheimer focused on, but nearly every one of the characters has a really well fleshed out arc to them. His wife... He's basically along with him for the ride, as are a lot of other characters in the film. And it, you know, it, the film takes place over 40 or so years. And you spend a lot of time with these characters, and it does make you wonder, was he egotistical and arrogant? Is he a typical scientist? Because there's a funny moment in the film where I think Matt Damon's character brings up he wouldn't hire him again or anyone else, because you know, scientists are great with atoms, but when it comes to interacting with other humans, they're not very good at it. They're all egotistical, they all think they're right, and they don't like people challenging their ideas. Some of the scenes involving groups of scientists talking over their ideas is pretty funny. They just, they're just they so abrupt, and a lot of them lack manners. But it's very funny seeing how people like that, how their minds work. They're great at dealing with subatomic particles, but when it comes to dealing with, with other people, they're just not very good at it. Which makes you wonder how so many of them were married for so long. And being a history buff, I especially loved the scenes with Albert Einstein. The actor playing Einstein was great. He's somewhat of a mentor of Oppenheimer. They knew each other quite well. And he has his moments that pop up through the film. Oppenheimer seeks out his advice whenever he needs to be kept on track. Because the theory back then, if when they were testing the bomb, they were concerned about destroying the world. If they pushed the button and detonated the bomb, it could start a chain reaction by igniting the air, which would go all around the world. Fortunately, that didn't happen, because if it did, there wouldn't be a movie about it. And it's later on in the film when they're just talking about H-bombs and A-bombs. got a little confusing. I know there's a difference between the two. I just would have liked a bit more explanation of one's an atomic bomb, one's a hydrogen bomb. But they didn't really go into the biggest differences, and that was a little bit rushed over, but, you know, the film's three hours long, so you can't blame them. There were a few key scenes that I think tied this film together and were beneficial for getting the story across. Some of them seem a little bit random when they're looked at individually, but as a whole, and when you look back at them, they make a lot of sense. One of which was the 
sex scene. Nolan doesn't do these very often in his films, so that one stood out a lot more than some of the others. Not to give too much away, but that does have a huge impact on the character. It's a little darker in tone than some of his movies have been, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert. There is a suicide scene or attempted alleged suicide scene. For those of you who have seen it, if you haven't, cover your ears now. Whose hand was on the back of her head? Because it looks like someone has a black glove pushing her head into the water. Now, whose hand was that? Was that was that the psychotic army guy played by Casey Affleck? Or was that to make you think that someone did do it or she just topped herself? Or was it someone who wanted to shut down the Manhattan Project? Maybe a Nazi spy, rival scientist, or someone who wanted to really fuck with Oppenheimer? That one I'll have to look into. It was well hidden, but it was too obvious to be random. The scenes building the bomb were some of the, my favourites. I like the whole process of them coming up with the idea, refining it, Los Alamos growing, testing, failing, testing again, and putting all the components together to get that finished product. Got a bit of a kick out of the trains, especially going through the desert and seeing the scenery out the window, especially the one with the blue seats. I like that one. The set of Los Alamos was great. It felt real. It felt like you were actually going there as opposed to just seeing it on a set. All the scenes that were shot inside in the buildings of the Los Alamos set felt real. They felt like they were actually shot inside of a building on the set as opposed to a studio. They felt like there was noise and people walking around outside. It gave it a very realistic element. The lighting seemed very natural as well. The scenes in the park with Einstein. I always get a kick out of seeing historical figures portrayed on screen, especially when you have one or two in the same film. It's nearly like a real-life Avengers when you have historical characters that cross over in the same time periods. Which, when you look at history, that happened a lot. There's always groupings or clusters of geniuses or key figures that always live and overlap at the same... live and exist and overlap at the same time. I did want a bit more info on the radiation... Once again, it's a three-hour film, and if they covered everything, it'd be a four- or five-hour film. And this is a bit of a spoiler. One thing that I did want included that wasn't was the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the effects the bombs had. That's just me being ultra-detailed. I would like to see a movie about that specifically. But once again, time restrictions, and this is not would have been taken away from the Oppenheimer story and the effects on him because he didn't really... The only thing he knew about the bombings is what he saw on the paper and the effects afterwards. But I would have liked to see some of that tied into it for a historical perspective. And maybe a few shots of what an atomic bomb does to a population centre. There's a great scene where a classroom, including Oppenheimer, is viewing the aftermath of the bombings and the effects on the people and those who died in hospital from radiation poisoning and the burns and all the gory details. You don't see it as an audience, you see it expressed on his face and this is one of the most powerful pieces of acting by Chilean Murphy. He sees a few images, he looks away from the screen and the horror is just all over his face. There's a couple of close-up scenes of his face and it's so expressive and he just, he's telling the story through the emotion and disgust on his face. You don't need to see the photos to know that he's absolutely horrified. That was one of the most powerful parts of the film. Him looking away tells it all. 
I also did like how they went into the ethics and morality of the bombs. Was it right to essentially bomb a defeated enemy or one that may not have known it was defeated, but in reality actually was, whether I like to admit it or not, is a different story. It's okay to say that in retrospect, but during the war, Japan wasn't going to stop, and this is one way of doing that that was going to cost the least amount of lives. And there's a line in the movie, you tell that to a GI getting ready to storm the beaches, if we have a weapon that can stop it, shouldn't they use it? And that's a key point. The bomb was seen as a way of ending the war and saving lives rather than lose thousands of more men storming the islands of Japan and then eventually try to take the mainland. You wouldn't need hundreds of thousands of troops to do that and there's no telling how many casualties would have come from a mass invasion of the Japanese mainland. So the bombs were seen as the most ethical way of stopping an enemy that wouldn't admit defeat. How do you stop someone like that? I can't remember, I was watching a World War II documentary years ago. After Hiroshima, the Japanese government denied the bombings happened. And when word got out and photographs of the devastation raised on Hiroshima, the Japanese government denied some of the impacts. They said only a small bomb had been dropped and there was nothing to worry about. And they didn't surrender. So three days later, another bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And that was enough to finally make them surrender. So that was the type of enemy you were dealing with back then. And that was a key part to the story because he was very torn with the decision to make the bomb and what the consequences could be. And that plagued him a lot in later life, even though he didn't physically choose to use the bomb. He was the one that literally changed the world forever, for better or worse, because nuclear weapons are still a problem now. They've only gotten bigger and more powerful and can do more damage, especially if you have a psychopath with a little man complex with his finger on a lot of nuclear buttons and on the other side of the pond you have a dementia sufferer with just as many nuclear weapons and the launch codes i also did like the scene where he does criticize the decision to use it on a defeated enemy it does show a very strong morality to the character i don't think you can call him arrogant because he doesn't seem to gloat too much in his achievements he does on the public side but in reality it did have a very severe impact on him. Towards the later half of the film, his journey so far and the decisions he'd made and what he'd been through so far starts to weigh on him. And this is where his wife, played by Emily Blunt, really shines through. She is an absolute rock and she sticks with him through thick and thin, through affairs and everything else. And she never once doubts him. She is right by his side. It was one of the most perfect examples of a strong female character, one that was actually well-written, well-rounded, and her story arc was really well-planned out. And she's played perfectly by Emily Blunt. There's a great scene in it where she's defending her husband to the board, and she isn't perfect either. She has a lot of problems. She's an alcoholic. She knows about his womanizing, and yet she tolerates it. The scene under the rock is another powerful example of that. She knows what he's been up to but she accepts it he's a brilliant man but at the same time neither of them are perfect she's not perfect he's not perfect he might be the brilliant scientist but he still needs the courageous woman in his corner such a awesome scene especially the one where she goes toe-to-toe with jason clark's character another underrated actor she's also a character that hides a lot of her feelings because there's bigger things at play she doesn't put her own personal shit 
in front of anything else that is happening and she definitely doesn't dump it on him and expect him to do this or that or give him ultimatums. She just takes the good with the bad. She accepts him for who he is. She just buries her feelings and then drowns them with alcohol. And she was such an interesting character and Emily Blunt just plays it so masterfully. The two very flawed peas in a pod, but both of them are a match made in heaven. The celebration scene was also key. There are so many emotions going on in that. They're celebrating the success of the bomb, ending the war. He's given a speech to the people of Los Alamos, and you can see there are these really over-the-top reactions on people. There's a guy in the front row with glasses who is a very enthusiastic clapper. The thumping music comes in, the lighting, the close-up, because he knows the devastation he has, lo- he has unleashed on the world. There's a really cool scene with the radi- effects of radiation that have been randomly scattered throughout this crowd. I thought that was a really creative and interesting way of describing the effects of radiation poisoning and the devastation without actually having to look at historical photos or without having to do a big giant set piece of the destruction of Hiroshima as much as I would have liked that. That would have been the stock standard historical biopic thing to do, but Nolan just has his own original unique spin on it and I think it works perfectly. He's also a man that could see the future coming. He predicts the arms race with the Soviets and the Cold War and predicts the devastation and implications on the world that nuclear weapons would bring. He could see the war coming and the government chose not to believe him. They wanted to just take the technology and use it and not put any limitations on it at the start. They don't believe him that a Cold War is coming. They don't believe the Soviets would do that or would make their own bombs, which seems pretty short-sighted. In retrospect, this is mainly due to the Soviets, aka the Russians, being on the American side in World War II and helping to end the war in Europe. They needed the Soviets, the Soviets needed them. So it's kind of funny that no one saw the next 20 years or so coming. There's a great scene with Gary Oldman as President Truman. He's very much a chameleon. I haven't seen him in a movie in a while. Although his appearance in the film is only brief, it is very impactful. There's lots of paradoxical elements in the film. Next time I see it, I'll have to take a notepad with me and write down all the paradoxes I can try and find. The most obvious paradox being the creation of a weapon of mass destruction that was used in order to achieve peace, which destroyed everything in its path and killed thousands of people in order to do that, therefore opening the Pandora's box that could never be closed leading to the complete change in the hierarchy of the world and the potential to destroy everything on the planet. I did like the backdrop of the film and the mention of communism. I didn't realise he was such a supporter of socialism. Back then, it's obviously different to the socialism we're probably used to thinking about. He was funneling money back to people on the front lines in the Spanish Civil War. And this was brought up in his past and it was something the government tried to get him on. It also brings up J. Edgar Hoover having a file on him and the era of McCarthyism and the Reds Under the Bed communist scare, which he was a central part of. I also did like the mention of JFK and can only hope that Christopher Nolan does a JFK film. Only if the writers of Indiana Jones 5 had have seen this film before making The Dial of Destiny, they could have learnt something about how to come up with a detailed and convincing 
and organic background story that isn't vague or confusing. Because the background of this is just set so perfectly. There's not a lot of time spent delving into McCarthyism, communism, or any of that stuff. Unlike the Dial of Destiny that mentions the space race, but it is the backdrop, but it's not really mentioned enough and it's kind of vague in the background, which would have been a hell of a lot more interesting if they had have made it a bit more of the forefront, the space race, and then things would have probably made a bit more sense. But everything's very rushed and choppy in that film, but that's a debate for another day. I can also imagine that the historical research for this film would have been extensive. I know how long it's taken me to write the epic lie of communism. That still isn't finished yet, so I can only imagine what it would have been like to write this film. It was based off of the book, American Prometheus. It's a book I have got to get. I'd also love to know how they go about editing the film in a non-linear way. Is it written and shot either linearly, 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 however you say it, and then edited non-linear? I could imagine it would get very confusing. You're constantly having to keep up with the timelines and what character comes into this part, what characters don't. It'd be a fucking nightmare for continuity. So be very interested to see how exactly they pull that off without confusing themselves more. Because I know just when I've edited the podcast and I've added stuff to it, and you try to go to find it, the spot where you're supposed to add this new section and it overlaps and you've got three different takes and you like a little bit of each and it's, it turns it gets fucking confusing really quick so I can only imagine what a non-linear historical biopic like this would have been like Oppenheimer says a line on the early on in the film that anti-semitism will end the war which I thought was really interesting Hitler didn't respect Jewish scientists and like Oppenheimer says in the film it's not your people they're trying to wipe out we're ahead of the Nazis in the race to build the bomb because Hitler disregards the research done in Germany because it's seen as quote-unquote Jewish science. A lot of the scientific community were Jews. Hitler couldn't be seen to be using what he thought was the enemy's science to build a bomb to fight the Allies. So I thought that was interesting. There's also another, another paradox. He's persecuting the Jews but they're the ones that came up with the science to build a bomb. But on the other side of the world, a Jewish-American scientist is working on the same bomb to drop on Germany to stop the war. And obviously, Germany surrendered before that could happen, and Japan bore the brunt of the first and only atomic bomb dropped on a city during war. So in a way, anti-Semitism does end up winning the war. Which there isn't a lot of that mentioned in the film. There is a bit, but like I said, this is timing and everything else. Also brings up the question, if the Nazis had built the bomb before the Americans, would they have used it? I think Hitler probably would have. I did hear in a history documentary years ago that there is a pretty strong rumour, and a lot of people seem to back this, that the Germans did figure the bomb out before Oppenheimer. They delayed it as much as they could, and they stalled it and told Hitler they weren't ready, and delayed it by a couple of years, because they didn't. They knew if they had finished it, Hitler was going to use it. There's a German urban archaeologist, I can't remember his name, he was also on this doco I watched, who believes that one of the first Nazi atomic bombs is lying in a bunker under Berlin somewhere. The, the bunker hasn't been found. 
it was either caved in or it was sealed up or something like that or something happened to it and it's being lost to records and he thinks it's a, literally a time bomb waiting to go off that if it corrodes enough that it might either leak or explode I don't might not ex- explode maybe if there's an earthquake or something but I think he's more concerned about the metal rusting and radioactive material leaking into the water table one of my favorite moments from the film was the now infamous hindu quote from the the bhagavad however you pronounce it by vishnu now i have become death the destroyer of worlds i love that quote it fits perfectly with the film and obviously j robert oppenheimer did say that but the moment it's said in the film it's delivered perfectly by chillian murphy which adds the cherry on top to a film that is very detailed and as close as you're going to get to a masterpiece, especially in the modern day. The film is masterfully written and directed by a true visionary filmmaker, Christopher Nolan. I'll have to see it a few more times to truly appreciate and absorb every detail in the movie and just all those little details that you missed the first few times you might see it because there's so much happening in this film. There's so much jam-packed into it but also just to take everything in and really appreciate the film because when you see something for the first time you can either be blown away by the scope scale the action whatever and you might miss some things because I've you know we've all seen those movies that you didn't like first time you saw it then on second viewing you actually liked it it made sense and some movies that were great first watch don't hold up on the second and third viewing this is definitely a movie like all of his films you're going to get a lot more out of the second and third time you see it. You're going to notice all those little things. All the non-linear moments will make more sense. The concepts of time, all the paradoxes all line up and become clearer. So all in all, I give Oppenheimer a four and a half out of five. It is by far the best film of the year so far. I've got a feeling that Oppenheimer is probably going to retain that spot. It was truly a epic and very special film to see. And I'd encourage everyone to go and see it. And with that, that concludes the epic review of Oppenheimer and the end of the show. We'll have a look at the Oppenheimer case, Security on Trial, on a future episode. In the meantime, I've got a few more episodes already recorded. I'm just making my way through the editing, which has taken a long time. Longer than I thought. There'll be a couple more movie-related episodes in the future. Part 2 of Avatar, The Way of Water. And then hopefully I'll have most of the epic lie of communism finished and recorded by then if not then maybe a few more smaller episodes or film-based episodes just before we get out of here a quick word from the you're creeping me out podcast hey everyone this is maria with your creeping me out podcast if you are into the paranormal true crime and just plain weird you're going to want to listen to our podcast My friend Jessica and I talk about all things weird and creepy, from the hat man to alien abductions to your creepy encounters. And that's where you, the listeners, come in. We are working on making more content for you for what your spooky little hearts desire, which means, you guessed it, we need your stories. You can email them to ycmopod at gmail.com. You can also find a link in our Instagram where you can leave a voice message. You can follow us on Instagram, threads, and Twitter at YCMOPod. Thank you for listening, and stay creepy, my friends. Definitely check them out wherever you get your podcasts from.
give them a like and a follow and help share the podcast around. A big thank you to everyone who listened. If you'd like to support the True Tank, there's a couple of things you can do. Head on over to the Facebook and Instagram page, give them a follow and like. Download your favorite episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone you think might like the show, help spread the word and get it out there. If you feel so inclined, you could leave a review for the show. It helps the show grow and I'll be greatly appreciated. I'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another episode. It'll be a bit of a mystery episode. Will it be a movie or will it be the Oppenheimer case? I don't know. You just have to stick around and tune in to find out. But until then, I'm a tank. This is the truth. May the truth be with you. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine running.